Thanks for joining us here at Thrive Church. We're a church passionate about moving people towards Jesus. For more information, go to our website, www.thrivechurch.co.za. Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas to each and every one of you. So good to see you. 10 o'clock's looking bright and shiny. It's before the Christmas lunch. Good to see you all this morning, and uh, it's great to be in church on Christmas Day. Hey, I mean, Christmas is the pinnacle of our faith, really. It, it really is. Easter is that, but it's, it's somber and it's reflective, but Christmas is celebratory. It's a happy moment. It's a happy time. It's a happy day. Uh, why don't you stand and have a quick stretch? Turn to somebody. Just tell them Merry Christmas. And listen, if you're single, if you're single, here's your moment, Okay. Did anybody meet anybody? There's a couple of yeses coming out there. I'm glad. There we go. I read a story the other day by the famous Danish philosopher and theologian called Soren Kierkegaard. He lived in the mid-1800s. He was um, an amazing man, an amazing thinker, and he gave us the particular story that you're about to hear. He was the one who penned the story first, actually. And since then, it's been retold many times in many different contexts and formats and many different cultures. But the core and the essence of the story is his. And he tells the story about this prince who wanted to find a maiden suitable enough to marry. He needed to find one that would be able to be of his class and be of his standing in society. And so he went on a search. But one day as he was out on an errand for his father, the king, his carriage went through this poor peasant, uh, really down and out town. And as his carriage found its way through this town, his eyes fell upon the most beautiful young lady he had ever seen in his life. He, he, it was one of these love at first sight. Instantly, he fell in love with her, saw her, locked eyes with her, and that was it. And after that, in the next few days, he looked for every excuse under the sun to get him himself and his carriage and his entourage to this village. And as he did so, he'd pass through and he'd, he'd look at this young lady. But this young man was faced with a choice, this prince. How is it that he would get this young maiden to marry him? Now, he had one of two choices available. He could simply issue a royal decree, an order. He could order her to marry him. She would have to because she was just a peasant and he was a prince. But even a prince wants to marry for love, don't they? The other option that he had was he could overwhelm her with his glory and with his splendor. I mean, he could arrive in the horse-drawn carriage with six amazing white horses and uh, arrive in his kingly robes and just overwhelm her and hope that that would do the trick. But every, even a prince wants to marry for love. And so what he decided to do was something unconventional, something out of the ordinary, something never done before. He decided that he would enter their village, but he would enter their village not in his robes and in his royal garb. He would enter their village as a peasant. He would put on the garbs and the robes of a peasant, and he would enter their village, and he would begin to eat the food they ate and speak the language they spoke and be concerned about the things they concerned about. He would begin to live life like they lived it, and he did so. And as he did so, he came into contact with this 
young lady. And over time, she grew to love him, fell in love with him, and they got married and happily ever after, like Rapunzel, like that kind of vibe. <laughs> the end, yeah. God was faced with a similar dilemma. The story, of course, is not a story just of a prince and a maiden. The story is actually God's story. How would he get this people that he had formed with his hands, how would he get us to love him? That was the dilemma. Now he could overwhelm us, overwhelm us with his splendor, but even God wants a people that love him. He could issue a royal, he could force us to love, but even God wants somebody love, to love him free will. And so God decided to enter the village of our lives. John chapter 1, 14 is where we're gonna be today. We're just gonna hang in one verse really for the, the time that we have together this morning. John 1, 14. From the Passion Translation, I want you to read this one first. It's, a, it's so beautiful. and says, and so the living expression became a man and lived among us. The living expression. Have you ever heard Jesus described like that? So the living expression became a man. And we gazed upon the splendor of his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, overflowing with tender mercy and truth. Perhaps if you've ever read John's Gospel, it's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Maybe this version found in the NIV version might have been more familiar to you. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, you should underline that paragraph or that, that just that section, those few words. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Now, I know that it's Christmas, and I know that I'm the only thing standing between you and your Christmas lunch. Eight, eight o'clock were easy because uh, they weren't even thinking of lunch, but it's 10 o'clock, and you, you're thinking of your lunch now. And I am the only thing standing, the, the chicken stands between you and your lunch. So, so I, I know all that, but it, and I know that it's Christmas, but you should still underline. You know that people who underline and take notes they're more likely to go to heaven. Did you know that? Some of you are like, is he serious? Is that real? But he, John uses this word, the word. He uses the phrase, the word. Now, immediately when we read that in verse 14, we, what you need to know in order to get the most out of this text is that John's all throughout chapter 1, culminating in this verse 14, he has been using this word, the word, or this phrase, the word, over and over and over and over again. It's the way he describes Jesus. But this is the last time that he uses Jesus as the word here. And the reason why he wants to do that is he wants to take us right back to verse one, where he uses Jesus, describes Jesus as the word for the first time. In the beginning, John 1, 1, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. John is telling us that this word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us, made his dwelling with, he's wanting to tell us this word, the same word in the beginning always was. He was eternally preexistent. He always was. 
and he was and he was with God and he was God. And yet he became the prince that made its way to the village because he was looking for love. Now for thousands of years, church, mankind's been trying to get to grips with this idea of this incarnation because John is telling us the story of the incarnation of, of God. If you want to think how to think of the incarnation, how to think of Jesus incarnate, incarnating God, just think of it this way. Jesus, God in a body. Jesus, God in a body. Now for thousands of years, People have tried to be trying to get to grips with this concept. Everybody from Socrates to Plato to Albert Einstein to Bono of you two has had something to say about this incarnation. Socrates, living 470 years before Jesus, listen to what he says. He says, Oh, that someone would arise, either a man or a God, to show us God. Plato, a little time after that, also a Greek philosopher. Bear in mind, hundreds of years before Jesus. He says, unless a God-man comes to us and reveals to us the supreme being, there's no help or hope. Two of the most intelligent men in the ancient world realized that it would take the incarnation of God to man to help man understand God. Albert Einstein, obviously post-Christ now, he says this, listen to his words. He says, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and the Torah. I'm a Jew, but listen to his words. They're beautiful. I never knew Einstein could put together wording like this. He says, I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. He goes on. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Albert Einstein, hey listen, if you're a rationalist, if you're an intellectual, if you're a skeptic, if you're a cynic, if you're somebody who wants empirical evidence and proof for Christ, Albert Einstein couldn't help but feel the presence of Jesus pulsate in the words of the Gospels. The question is, have you read his word? Have you allowed his presence to pulsate? U2's Bono, he gets back after a long tour, been on the tour for many months, and he attends a Christmas Eve service in Dublin. And in this Christmas Eve service, it's amazing what can happen in Christmas services, church. Uh, in this service, Bono, he was raised a Catholic, but for the first time, the Christmas story grips him, and he grasps the truth of the Christmas story. If you don't yet believe in him, it might just be because you haven't yet grasped the truth. Today could be that day. Bono, he says this, he, with tears streaming down his face. This is U2's lead singer. When he finally, having been raised Catholic his whole life, he finally gets the truth of Christ. When you finally get the truth of Christ, he will change your life. You'll, you'll never be the same ever again. He says the idea, listen to this, the idea that God, if there's a force of love and logic in the universe, the idea that this force would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. But that it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty. A child, I just thought, wow, he says. Just the poetry of it. He says, I saw the genius of it. Picking a particular point in time 
and letting the whole story turn on this moment in time. Here he gets poetic. He says, love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be, listen, he's talking John's language, there must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. Herbert Spencer was an agnostic. Didn't really care for whether God existed or not. He lived over a century ago. He used the following logic. He said, I've never seen a bird fly from Earth's atmosphere into outer space. Therefore, the logic follows that the finite cannot break through to the infinite. His logic was sound, but where he didn't progress it to was to the fact that the infinite can penetrate the finite, which is the Christmas story, which is Jesus, God in a body, God in our body. Are you with me this morning? So what exactly does it mean then for Christ to be incarnated? What does it mean that the word became flesh? What does that actually mean? Well, what it does not mean, it does not mean that Jesus turned into a man in the sense that he stopped becoming God and now became man. It does not mean that. It does not mean that Jesus reduced his deity in order to become humanity. Rather, it means that to his eternal deity, he added perfect humanity. Matt, will you help me quickly just take this jacket off? Thanks, dude. Keep it with you. So, here's, here's my shirt is humanity, a deity. My shirt is deity. Jesus did not take off deity. Don't worry, I'm not taking the shirt off. <laughs> Christmas has been bad enough already. He, he didn't strip off his deity. He put on humanity. Are you with me? Are you with me? Does that make sense? One theologian said, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Christ was now not God minus some elements of his deity. Jesus was not God minus some elements of his deity, but he was God plus humanity. Are you with me? There are five truths about this humanity, about this incarnation. There are five truths truth to it, which we must understand if we're going to understand John 1.14, and if we're going to understand the core of what it is that we believe at Christmas. First is this. Jesus has two natures. He's God and man. Are you with me? Two, he's both God and he's man. Hang with me there. Second truth is that each nature is full and complete. He's both fully God and fully man. He's not now partly God because he became a man. So he's not like diluted version of God. He's not like God, God light. He's not like Coke light. Okay. He's not Coke without the sugar. He's not God without stuff. All right. He's fully God and still fully man. Third truth. Each nature remains distinct. The one doesn't come into the other and overtake it and overpower it and overshadow it it doesn't come in and dilute it. Each nature remains 
perfect, full, and distinct. Hang with me, I'm going somewhere with us. Fourth truth, Christ is still only one person. So even though he's two natures, he's one person. If your mind is spinning and thinking, how can this be? You're not alone. All of ours do. Fifth truth, things that are true of only one nature are true of his whole nature. Are you with me now? Let me explain it to you this way. In March 2003, Pastor Candice and I got married. Up until that point in time, I was a son and a brother. On the 15th of March 2003, I became a husband. In that moment in time, just because I became a husband doesn't mean I stopped becoming a brother or stopped becoming a son. Rather, something was added to. Are you with me now? So let me run that analogy through these five truths. I'm two natures. I'm a husband and a brother or a son, right? I'm two things now. Each nature is full and complete. I'm no less a brother or a son because I'm now a husband. I'm no less a husband because I'm a brother or a son. They're each full and complete in and of themselves. Each nature remains distinct. I don't behave with Pastor Candace like a son or a brother. She'd kill me if I behaved like I did with my younger brother to her. And I don't behave like a husband with them. Are you with me? But I'm still only one person. Son, husband. My kids think I'm more than one person. You know, maybe parents have been there. I often have to say to Caleb, I'm only one person. He looks at me and says, I don't care how many people you are. Just make it happen. (laughs) Can any parents relate? Could I have a tissue, guys, please? Things that are true of only one part of our nature are true of our whole nature. If I'm a selfish son or brother, I will become a selfish husband. If I'm a kind and loving son and brother, I will become a kind and loving husband. Son, are you with me? So the word became flesh. He became man. When God uses that word flesh, and when John uses that word flesh, he could have said other stuff. He could have said God became a man. He doesn't. He could have said God became a human body. He doesn't. Have you ever wondered why he uses the word flesh? It's like, it seems like a very affrontive word. It seems like it's very, almost like a base. It feels like it's sheesh, like it's a bit jarring, isn't it? Like, word became flesh. Like, sheesh, it feels like a pig in an abattoir. Are you with me? It's like sheesh, it's, it hits you. The, God became flesh. John is trying to tell us something very specific. He's using that word because he wants us to understand how fully human Jesus became. He wants us to know that Jesus took upon himself our full human nature except for our sin. Jesus' human nature was subject to hunger, to thirst, to weakness, to tiredness, to temptation, to death. He wants us to understand that 
this word who always was, eternally pre-existent, who was with God and who was God, he wants us to understand that he also knows what it is to be human. He wants us to know that Jesus knows what it's like to feel betrayal, to feel our disappointment, to feel our hurt, to feel our difficulty, to feel our frailty, to feel our disillusionment, to feel our doubt, to feel our dismay, to feel our loss. Listen, if you had a hard year this year, if your year's been filled with betrayal or difficulty or disillusionment or retrenchment or grief or loss, the good news of the gospel is that he knows how it feels. Because he stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he wept. In that moment, he was man. He stood in the garden of Gethsemane and fell to his knees and said, God, if it's possible, please let the suffering that I'm about to endure pass. Because I don't want it. He was man. You have a God. I have a God. We have. We serve a God who's not a million miles away. We serve a God who knows what it is to feel the weakness and the frailty and the difficulty and the discouragement that you and I feel. The Word became flesh. And the word dwelt amongst us. That's the section I asked you to underline. John uses a very particular word here. When he talks about dwelt again, he could have said, God made his home amongst us. He could have set up, told us he set up camp. He, he put his posse here. He could have, I mean, he could have, he could have used that. He uses the word, he made his dwelling. Now, the English there is so... It feels so inadequate and so shallow because really what John is describing in, in the Greek there is actually like a tent or a tabernacle. He's describing a tent-like structure. So he says, the word became flesh. He felt your humanity. He knows your humanity. He knows how you feel. He knows who you are. He knows what it's like to be you. But he set up his tent with us. Now, you might say, it's 2018, I'm sitting here in Boxburg, I've traveled from Brackpan, what on earth does a tabernacle or a tent have to do with me in my modern life? It's got everything to do with you and with me. Let me explain. When John uses this word, tabernacle or tent, every reader in the first century would have immediately gone back to a time when God was present in what was called the tabernacle. There was a time in Israel's history when they were liberated from Egypt. They'd become slaves in the land of Egypt. For 400 years, they served the Egyptians as slaves. And then God in his providence brought them, delivered them out of Egypt with the help of a man called Moses. Moses was responsible for liberating this people. And as they got liberated, as they came out of Egypt, they embarked on a journey through the wilderness. But because of their stupidity and because of their slave thinking, they made silly decisions, which kept them in the wilderness a lot longer than what they were supposed to. In fact, they ended up in the wilderness for 40 years. 
cruising around, cruising around, cruising around the same trees and mountains for 40 years. If you think your life's boring, imagine that. But in that time, God was reforming and reimagining a nation. He was busy transforming them from a slave nation into his nation. And in, in that time, in that 40 years, God asked Israel to set up what was called a tabernacle, a tent-like structure which would form, would be their kind of temporary temple. And as they broke up camp in one area of the wilderness and moved to other parts, the tabernacle would get broken back down, lifted up and carried with them, and then put back wherever the new campsite was going to be. The point was this, the tabernacle was central to the reforming of this people. And so when John is telling us that the word became flesh and made his tabernacle among you, he's telling us that this word is central to the reforming of a new people. He's telling us that the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle. Well, Jesus is the new tabernacle. He's the one where the presence of God is manifest and shown. Just like the camp would form itself and, and, and be set up around the tabernacle, Christ is the center of his church. The church is formed around him. Just like the tabernacle was the place where the people of Israel would bring their sacrifices, they'd have to like slug a, a goat or a bull or something, you know, kill it sacrifice the blood for the atonement of their sins. Just like that was the place where they would perform the sacrifice, Christ is the place where the sacrifice was formed. The ultimate sacrifice. His body was the place where the ultimate sacrifice took place. Just like the tabernacle was the place where there was this thing called the mercy seat, it was situated on top of the Ark of the Covenant where God's law was. There was a thing called the mercy seat. And the whole idea was that God would continually be gazing down on the mercy seat. Christ is our mercy seat. We find mercy when we come to Him. Did the Word become flesh? He knows what it is to be human. Did God in a body take on our flesh and our humanity so he would know what it is to be tempted, so he would know what it is to be torn, so he would know what it is to be in difficulty and distress and disillusionment and discouragement and despair. The word became flesh so you would know that he knows how you feel. Did the word become flesh? He did, so that he would set up his presence in our lives so that our lives would begin to revolve around his life so that he would be our tabernacle our tent the presence of God in our life he, he would be the very place where we worship are you hanging with me 10 o'clock there was a story about a man who um, every year the same thing would play out in their home. Every year the wife would go to church with the kids 
and say, honey, do you wanna come to church with me? Every year the same scene would play out. No, I don't. I don't care for God. I don't care about God. And why, he would ask in the Christmas story, would God ever come to earth? Why would God ever make himself a man? That's silly, it's stupid, it's ridiculous. It's a fairy tale. One day, the scene plays out on a snowy Christmas Eve. The wife asks her husband, honey, do you want to come to me with, ch- with me to church? He says, it's stupid, it's a fairy tale, it's, it's a myth. It's a historic myth, nothing more than that. Why would God come to earth? You Christians are smoking your socks. Stupid people who can't think for themselves, you would think. So the wife goes off to church, takes the kids. The husband settles back in his favorite lazy boy chair with the remote in his hand, which is the dream of every man, isn't it? To have the remote. He settles back, he turns on the TV to watch Man United lose yet another game. It's still Jose Mourinho still in charge. And so there's no hope for them whatsoever. They're playing Everton, and even Everton can beat them, yes. So he sits down, and just as he's getting comfortable, he hears a thump on the glass window of the lounge. He looks outside the window to try and see, but the snowy blizzard has gathered momentum, and he can only see a few feet ahead of him. Can't see what it was. He waits for the storm to die down and he opens his front door and battles the, the, the blizzard, which is calming a little bit. And he looks out and he, he sees a flock of geese. These geese are flapping and flying around aimlessly. Man, they, they're like flying a couple of feet above the earth. They're, they're disorientated and they're flying in circles and you can see they don't know what's going on. These geese have been flying south for the winter and had hit the snowy blizzard and been battered and bruised and disorientated and they had found themselves to his farm and here they were dazed and confused with no, no way out of the storm, couldn't get their way out of the storm at all. He looked at these geese and he felt sorry for them. He thought, how is it that I could help these geese? He saw a barn, his barn just to his right. He thought, let me open the barn door. There's light and warmth. If if I open this barn door, surely the geese will see that and they'll make their way into the barn. He does that and the stupid geese don't budge. They carry on flying and flapping around aimlessly. So next he tries a few breadcrumbs. He, He breaks some bread and he scatters some breadcrumbs from the entrance of the barn all the way to where the geese are and he hopes that the food will entice them to enter the barn. The stupid geese aren't biting. Suddenly he thinks, if only I could become a goose, then maybe I could lead these geese. But how's he gonna become a goose, right? So he goes into his barn, he gets a brainwave. He goes into his barn where his geese are sleeping all puffed up and warm and chilling out, sipping an espresso, each of them. And he picks one of these geese up. He thinks, what on earth are you doing? takes this goose back and sets it amongst the geese that are flapping and flying aimlessly in the storm, not knowing which way to go. This goose, who's been so rudely interrupted from his coffee, immediately scopes out the barn door and gets up and flies straight back into the barn, says, I'm having none of you guys, thanks. And with that, the geese who had been flapping and flying aimlessly see one of their own head for the barn. 
and they all follow. And in that moment, he realizes only a goose could lead a goose home. Only a word who became flesh, who became us, could lead us home. And in that moment, his doubt and his skepticism disappeared. And he knelt and he prayed his first ever prayer. He didn't quite know how to pray, but he said a simple yet sincere prayer. God, thank you for sending a man to send this man home. morning on Christmas morning, what better time could there be to respond to the one who became like us to lead us home? I'd love to extend the opportunity and the invitation to you this morning. It's the best invitation and it's the best RSVP you could ever give is to say yes to the one who leads you home. When you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to living your life like he lived his life. You're saying yes to following his word. You're saying yes to learning to live like he lived. You're saying yes to letting him take ownership and control of your life. You're saying yes to belief in the strange mystery that the word would become flesh and dwell amongst us. This message was recorded live at Thrive Church. We hope that it inspired you to move towards Jesus.